Welcome to the Shoegazing Podcast. I'm Jesper Ingevaldsson, running the classic men's shoe blog Shoegazing, which you now find the international edition of on the new address shoegazing.com. For this episode, I met with bespoke shoemaker Daniel Vegan, who has been working for 10 years at the bespoke department of the famous English brand Gaziano & Girling. Early in his career, he was dubbed the wonder child of the bespoke shoe world, and it was no surprise when he this year won the world championships in shoemaking. Although Daniel obviously has a lot of talent, the main reason he has succeeded so well in shoemaking is spelled dedication. After all, this is the guy who does a regular 40-hour work week as a last and pattern maker at Gaziano & Girling, and then on his spare time during evenings and weekends does another 40-hour job week as a freelancing bottom maker for the same company. So when I met up with him in Tokyo, Japan, for this podcast interview, we focused our discussion around this topic, and he also gives a lot of advice to aspiring shoemakers out there. Daniel Wigan, welcome to the Shoegazing Podcast. Thank you very much, Jesper. Uh, we we both actually have sort of a similar background, uh, growing up in suburbs out of Stockholm in Sweden, and uh, we did mountain bike racing in our teenage years, <laughs> and here we are now. Yeah, back together again, <laughs> on the other side of the world. Yeah, um, I know that you through the years, uh, among other things, uh, been really into a bunch of stuff. Uh, bikes, one of them then, and I know, I think you collected aquarium fishes, danced swing, and other stuff. Have you always been nerding in on things? Yeah, I think I'm a lifelong nerd. <laughs> With, um, I tend to do pretty much one thing at a time and do a lot of it maybe to the point of exhaustion that kind of get really into it and then really over it and move on mm -hmm. what whatever what makes me change my hobby i don't really know what that is but you know you do something long enough you kind of get tired of it or you just want to do something different Should we be nervous that you quit shoemaking? Uh, you know, everything I've ever done, I thought, this is amazing. I'm going to do this my whole life. And and obviously I haven't. So, <laughs> But at the moment, I think I'm, I'm quite enjoying the shoe industry or the shoemaking part of it. And um, it's been... Um, it's probably the first one that I've enjoyed having as a job. Yeah. The other ones have been hobbies or when I've done them as a job, maybe I haven't enjoyed it that much. Yeah. So this has translated well into a profession, I think. Yeah. So for now, I don't see myself quitting anytime soon. It's been 10 years now, so I'm sure I can do another 10 at least. Good. <laughs> uh, so, so when... Uh, and why did you get into shoes? Um, I think most people of of my generation of shoemakers, maybe a little bit earlier as well. You know, I think before these times, you would get into shoemaking maybe because you were born in a shoemaking family. 
you were born in an area that had a lot of shoemaking, like in, in Northamptonshire where I live. I think most of the people I meet today, they're not from these areas or with this background. It's something that you've come across, whether you're into uh, only shoes or maybe you're into menswear perhaps, which shoes are a big part of. Mm. Um, and you, you find out of the product or the item that way and then maybe you decide that okay I want to make it or I want to be involved somehow maybe you want to have a store of high-end shoes maybe you want to write a blog about high-end shoes <laughs> yeah. um, so I choose the, the making side because I'm more of a I'm not really a business or sales kind of person I, I like to build <laughs> build stuff um, and I like gear, like I like tools, I like books, I like all that stuff. And uh, as a shoemaker, you you can have there's a lot to play with. So it's a good hobby. You can collect and gather items, not just shoes, but everything around it. So it's uh, if you want to occupy your time, it's it's a good it's a good thing to do. But I think personally, I got into it through a little bit of a kind of menswear perspective. Yeah. I got a little bit into clothing and and like you mentioned before, I used to do a lot of swing partner dancing, and it's not really that into clothing, but it's not like bicycles you can buy bicycles and parts and stuff, so you're kind of left with the shoes and the and the clothes a <laughs> yeah. little bit so. I choose to, I kind of gravitated towards the shoes. Maybe I had a hard time finding shoes that I really liked or, you know, he thought things could be better and he started dreaming about, you know, these bespoke shoes you read about yeah. and, and all that stuff and who makes them, where do they make them. Um, yeah. So just started to investigate <laughs> through the, through the, the scene of, clothing and shoes and uh, tell me a bit about how you went to England and got to start at Gatsian and Girling uh, 10 years ago then because uh, I think it says a lot uh, of the topic we are to discuss here. yeah no it's um, the first when I first got the idea that I wanted to make shoes I wasn't really looking to leave Sweden or Stockholm I was quite happy with my hometown and the life that I had there with friends and you know I had a job that I was quite happy with and uh, I was just looking around because I had no idea maybe there is a shoemaking school in Sweden or shoemakers I didn't really know them I know the big big famous brands were in the UK and France and Italy but I didn't know if there was a possibility to do it back home without having to change change your life <laughs> or change your environment so drastically um, but I kind of quickly realized that there's not not really any shoemaking around in Sweden, not to any great extent, or at the level or the type of shoemaking that I wanted to do. Um, I don't really remember what I had in mind. I think I just had a vague idea that shoes are cool, I want to make them and make that a job and I can live in Stockholm and sell beautiful shoes <laughs> uh, to to people around here but mm. I think now I know that that's that's not really that realistic 
so I went I did have a brief contact with a, a kind of crafts organization in Sweden that tries to find people apprenticeships for for a lot of crafts or even other types of jobs just mm. getting people students connected with masters or you know getting in feeding the industry and giving students an opportunity to pursue maybe a career that's not a typical kind of university degree or something like that. Was it them who directed you towards Northampton? No, they... um, I basically had a friend of mine who's a saddle maker or a leather worker help me get in touch um, and... I put together a letter who I was, what I wanted to do, what I was looking for. And they liked the letter enough to to take me in for an interview or a kind of consultation maybe. Uh, But basically they just said, you know, you look really, you seem really interested, but there's nothing for you really, not at the moment anyway. Uh, And maybe not what I was really looking for. So it kind of ended there a little bit. And uh, I instead just went on and probably sent an email to every shoemaking company in in the world. <laughs> but I got almost no answers um, or very short answers that were not too optimistic. Uh, but I did get an answer back from Dean Gerling at Gassiano Gerling, where I work now. And we did agree that I was going to go meet him in Norwich, where he lives. Um, and uh, I went, uh, so I went to England probably in March of 2009, I think. And I, I spent an extra day in London. And I thought, you know, I didn't get, I didn't get an email back. But maybe if I go knocking on the door, you know, I'll. You know, can maybe get hold of somebody that can mm. give me some more information. Maybe not get me a job or an apprenticeship, but tell me what to do or why I'm not suitable or what do I need to do to become suitable mm. or more interesting to them. Um, so I went to Cleverly, Lobs, Fosters, um, and just had a quick chat with whoever was there at the time Um, and I think none of them were really that interested I think because at the time I had almost no experience Um, I was quite willing to work for free for a while uh, because I understood that with my little experience I can't be of that great value Um, but there was nothing really there you know, some of them had apprentices already and now working for a company that attracts apprentices or people that are into shoemaking or want to pursue it ourselves and I know how difficult it can be so I wouldn't say that anybody was typically negative or you know dismissive it's just uh, it's not businesses that are highly profitable so they can't throw money around just having apprentices and when you have an apprentice, you know, you have to invest a lot of time teaching them, which distracts you from what you need to do <laughs> as a craftsman. Um, and um, so I know it can be really difficult. Uh, so I wouldn't hold that there. There, uh, my lack of opportunity in London, I wouldn't hold that against any other companies there. Uh, but then you 
met with the team then? Yeah, I did take the train up to Norwich and we had a quick meeting. He showed me his, the workshop where he works and run, run, and still runs part of G&G from. So he just said what they were doing at the moment, because they were just starting their own factory. Up until then, they've only done bespoke and experimented with having some ready-to-wear shoes within the Alfred Sargent factory. But that, that was at the moment kind of coming to an end and they were starting their own factory. But I think they've only really operated that for literally weeks mm. or even that when I saw him. So mm. it was very, you know, it wasn't really much there. There was a building with some machinery, but mm. it wasn't really a, a really production going on. Um, so they, he, he, I basically was offered that you can come here and and learn from, from Dean. Um, so we were going. I, I went home and we, you know, had kept in contact and tried to make some arrangements to agree on when is this going to happen, how, what, when, kind mm. of thing. Um, but it turns out the the factory was a lot of work <laughs> to uh, to keep get going and to run. So I think Dean realized he's not really going to have time to spend with me. So we decided after a few months that instead of me going to Norwich, that I would move to Kettering in Northamptonshire, where where Tony was, was based and is still based and where we have the factory now, to go and spend time in the factory and with Tony. Because mm. at least there, there would be some kind of shoemaking going on all the time, rather than go to Norwich and Dean not making shoes and just running the business. Mm. So it would allow me to be in an environment and kind of get used to shoes and you know suck in as much as I could from because I had no experience so that was definitely better than anything I'd ever had back home here. Yeah. So it was, it was as good of an introduction as any and I think in many ways it was probably quite good because in the factory you could do simple independent tasks. You don't have to be a complete shoemaker. You can learn one part, do that maybe get paid for that um, and then kind of build step by step more more knowledge and, and so skills. You, yeah, you sort of both did stuff for the ready-to-wear and learned from yeah. Tony on the bespoke. Yeah, at the moment the bespoke department was a very typical kind of outworker based mm -hmm. uh, bespoke business where Tony would fit the lasts up and, and modify them, measure the clients and do some pattern work but then use an outworker, upper maker or closer as we call it and uh, and then maybe send that on with the last to to a bottom maker. So there wasn't really a lot of shoemaking going on in that place but it would allow me to see what shoes were supposed to look like and what they would look like in different stages and it was just you know before I came to England I hadn't really ever seen a bespoke shoe in real life before so just being in an environment where you get subjected to to these things um, and helps to educate your eye and you know that okay this is what they actually look like up close and you know when you try to do your own shoes you have a reference to kind of strive for yeah. and I've later realized that some of the makers we used at the time are probably one of the better makers around in the world so I think I had a it was a very good thing to see that as a first impression that you you just assume that it's all like this and <laughs> and you just try to copy it and it wasn't until years later I realized that this 
there's a lot of worse shoes <laughs> out there. <laughs> um, so I think that was really, really helpful. Yeah. Um, and uh, what was your goal when you uh, started with shoemaking? I think like I mentioned briefly before, um, my or original idea was that I would stay in Stockholm and learn the shoes and basically like I think a lot of people because I see it with with people that want to get into it it's basically you want to take a shoemaking course and then you think I know how to make shoes I'm going to start a brand and everybody's going to love my designs and they're going to fit perfect every time and the leather is going to be amazing and everybody's going to love it and it's going to be great Um, it is great but it's a lot more work Um, and I think um, so my original plan probably kind of ended quite quickly. So after moving to England, I probably thought of myself as somebody that would maybe be one of these outworkers uh, or a freelance shoemaker, at least for uh, a good couple of years and maybe slowly venture into something where I would make shoes for myself one day or so. But at the moment, I was so focused on just learning it. I wasn't that, wasn't thinking much what what I would do with it when mm-hmm. I know when I knew. And I saw quite quickly that okay, if you want to do last upper patterns really well, which I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do it well and you know be really good at it, not just try to settle for you know a basic knowledge just to have a job. Um, I wasn't really interested in that. I wanted to just see how the fun the fun part was getting better, so I wanted to keep getting better. <laughs> I knew that much and to be able to at least make a living of it. But I didn't know if I wanted to have my own business, if I wanted to be a bottom maker, you know, exactly what it would look mm. like. But I knew that working at G&G, I saw that making shoes having your own company was a lot of work and I thought it's going to be many years before I even need to consider that so let's just focus on on the shoes for now and the business side um, you know later yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now uh, 10 years later you are uh, considered one of the best bespoke shoemakers in the world and actually the reigning world champion <laughs> but uh, w- what did you do to get there can you sort of explain? Um, well, I started making one shoe and then another one and then another one. Um, I think it's just been, I think it's been an, a big help has been to be, like I mentioned before, in the environment of, of good shoes. I wouldn't say that you can't learn to make really good shoes independently if, if you know living in a country that maybe doesn't have shoemaking the way England or France or Italy or, or Japan like we are now does but it definitely does help I think now with the internet the need of being around is maybe a bit less you know, the world kind of shrinks a little bit and you have access to seeing these things to educate your eyes so you can go you know if you're making a shoe and you're not sure if you know the shoe, the the way you weld the shoe. If it looks right, you can go on the internet and you can just find or the Instagram and just find as many pictures as you like from almost any shoemaker that you would admire and try to imitate. Or 
you know, try to reach their level and, and use it as a visual reference. And, you know, you, you, you might not be able to see how they did it physically doing it, but you can see the end result. And, and you know, that's the important part. If, if, it, if it looks the same and, and wears the same, it's probably very, very similar. So if you can get it to look like that, you're, you're probably almost there. So it's just when you're struggling, you know, it might be really good to have somebody to give you some advice. But I actually think that that advice is probably more valuable maybe later in your shoemaking career than in the beginning. Um, Why? The first, you know, because if you take a shoemaking course or read a good book or, you know, you can pretty much figure out what you do at what stage, you know, you make an upper, you, you have a last, you, you know, what do you do and at what stages. Once you know what to do, the most important part is to do it a lot. <laughs> so just to repeat over and over and over again until you get it into your kind of muscle memory and, and learn from your mistakes. Uh, and it, usually you progress really fast in the beginning because you don't know anything and each pair there's lots of new lessons you have learned and you, and you can really improve at quite a rapid rate. And I see it with most of the apprentices that I've trained or I'm sure colleagues of mine have a similar experience that you can really progress to a certain level really fast if you just put in the hours. But then, you know, almost everybody hits some kind of wall where you kind of feel like you're doing everything right, but you're not getting to that next level. And I think that's when you need advice from a more experienced maker or not even necessarily more experienced maker maybe just another person who's in the similar position as you are that maybe figured something out then you can kind of fill in each other's blanks a little bit you know um so um but for me personally to reach where i am now it's i think it's been a combination of being at a firm that has been very generous in kind of pushing me and allowing me a lot of freedom to to learn through making mistakes and also to kind of also to see another part of the shoemaking side which is i was put in a position to kind of travel and see clients and and see that side of it probably a lot earlier than most people working with shoes I came into the business of Gaziano Girling when Tony was kind of focusing more on running the factory and doing a lot of product development and design and dealing with retailers and so on that there wasn't really the same time as he, he, there used to be to run the bespoke side. And they saw I was very interested in it and, and wanted to learn more and probably thought it wouldn't be a bad idea to <coughs> get me more involved um, so they started taking me on trunk shows and seeing clients like very early in my career which is very generous maybe in hindsight maybe I thought I wasn't really ready for that but at the time I probably thought that it's like oh yeah they're, they're giving me this opportunity I must be it must be amazing <laughs> um, and I think it was probably maybe a little bit, bit of both, maybe not amazing, but definitely, you know, you know, something that I would be capable of doing. But it's definitely been a very steep learning curve. Mm. Um, it's a lot easier to learn when you have to than if you just do it out of 
curiosity or as a as a hobby. So I, w I was given a lot of problems <laughs> to solve uh, and just tried my best at, at doing that. Mm. Um, so mm. yeah, that's um, I think that's that's helped me to to learn a lot of things in a fairly short period of time. And just just necessity, like we are working for a company that has a high quality. Uh, and is recognized before I got there as, as one of the more prestigious firms, even if they were quite young at the time, but definitely got a lot of attention for quality and a little bit more modern designs, at least for an English firm. Um, I kind of had to had a lot to live up to, to not ru ruin that. So definitely had to kind of outperform my skill level a mm. little bit to to not make to not mess it up. And looking at uh, your regular days, uh, how many hours do you spend working with shoemaking an average week, would you say? Uh, I would say probably on average. It's, it's hard to count for me because I do a lot of different things. A lot of time can be spent just traveling to see clients, not just as on a trunk show, but being up in Kettering in Northamptonshire and seeing most of our clients on Savile Row where we have our um, our store. Uh, it takes a lot of time to get down there and I wouldn't necessarily call that work even if I try to do some emailing and ordering supplies and things when I'm on the train. It's not like I'm sitting down and lasting shoes every, every hour but I generally tend to go to work around 8.30 in the morning usually leave about 5.30, 6 o'clock. And then usually I start another little shift in my workshop at home in the evening, usually around 7, 7 or 8, and usually go on to around midnight or quite a bit past that uh, most days of the week. Hmm. Um, and weekends? And weekends, it's... Um, I don't get up that early, but I definitely finish late. But it, it's a mix. It, 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 at the moment, for me, it's, it's just all shoes all the time. And it's been like that for probably the last seven years. So even if I'm not necessarily making shoes, it's, it's doing something with the, with the shoes or some, something G and Gaziano and Girling um, bespoke shoe department related all the time. Because mm. uh, uh, you're everyday job is sort of as a last maker mm -hmm. and uh, uh, part of running the bespoke department of Gaziano and then the second shift as you describe mm -hmm. it in the second factory of yeah. Gaziano and Gerling yeah. which is your home mm -hmm. uh, then you do can you say that you're freelancing as a, a bottom maker yeah, for Gaziano um, the, in the evenings and the weekends I, I would probably say that I do what an outworker bottom maker would do that is that you you have a last and an upper and then you 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 put it together to mm. to make the final shoe so if i was an if i was an outworker the things i do during my spare time that's what i'd be doing as a full-time job but now like you mentioned I, I basically my nine to five is to be a last maker pattern cutter kind of managing production of bespoke shoes at Gaziano and Girling and also 
kind of training apprentices and yeah basically everything that needs doing in a workshop like that and now that we're a few couple of people of our team it's been maybe become more of a management job or quality control or either just given the go no go on 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 a lot of things um before when i was we were just one or two people there it was probably not that much to manage it just go to work and make last and patterns but even as a manager i do still make all the last see majority of the clients for measurements and fittings and deliveries um, uh, and uh, a big part of the pattern cutting as well even though now i have more of a dedicated pattern cutter closer mm. Um, and a few in-house makers along with apprentices that help with making shoes for fittings and other things that needs doing <laughs> yeah. small small tasks but more and more people uh, have been interested in becoming shoemakers in recent years but do you think that people in general understand the dedication needed to succeed um I, I definitely think they don't if they've done any of it. Um, it's definitely the hardest thing that I've ever had to do out of my hobbies or kind of career choices or attempts of, of a career choice. Um, <clears throat> it's just so incredibly uh, unforgiving job. Um, as because you can put so much work into it and still it can still be wrong <laughs> or the customer doesn't like it or you know you have uh, when it and probably especially with like fit and and colors and there's so much that is kind of open to interpretation so when you're fitting a client or making a shoe designing a shoe for a client you know what we're really looking at is something that's there they're telling me and I'm interpreting their wish so it's just an interpretation of what they're asking for and you know when somebody says you know they want a sharp square toe or something you know that can look a lot of different ways to a lot of different people um, so when I present something that's what I thought that they wanted and maybe it wasn't quite right and to change it leather being a material that doesn't really like to be taken apart and put back together again maybe in, in that maybe textiles could in, a, in in some ways for a tailor um, it yeah to do any changes is a lot of work it can be very expensive uh, a lot of waste um, so to do shoemaking at this level is, is very un, unforgiving and a lot of work uh, and you just have to do a lot of things over and over and over again and take it on the chin when when it doesn't come out right and uh, I'm, I'm not sure that anyone can really expect to be prepared for that uh, it's definitely not what you dream about when you think you want to start a shoemaking career um, you you want everything to be perfect all the time and um, I think what a lot of people don't expect is also how demanding the clients can be. And rightfully so, like our shoes are sold as probably 
some of the better in the world and has a, a very high price tag and it take a long time to get them you know waiting lists can be a year or two years so the customers has every right in the world to expect a lot but it's still it's still just a pair of shoes and um, it, it can be difficult to live up to sometimes unrealistic expectations and uh, sometimes you have to to manage those expectations so the shoemaking side, the you know the making, the designing, all of that is is great, and what I think keeps people in the job, you know the the selling, promoting that side, you know I don't I don't think that's really what shoemakers enjoy. Hmm. When uh, at Katzian and Girling, uh, how do you work when bringing in new apprentices, uh, and how do you judge if they have the dedication needed? No, this this is a very difficult part of the job. Uh, for us, you know, apprentices generally tend to come to us. We don't have to trace them down that much. So we get emails. Maybe somebody will pop into our store and introduce themselves. But usually, we get an email. Try to see if they've done any work before and send us some picture of their work. Um, but we usually try to get at least have people come visit the workshop, see what we do, even if we're not in a position to offer a, a, an apprenticeship at the time, just to give them a peek of what the industry looks like from within, if they haven't really seen that before. Maybe they just took a course or right. you know done a little bit on their on their own. Um, but if there's somebody that has a little bit more experience, maybe they spend a year at some other firm somewhere or maybe a longer period in some school for shoemaking we usually ask them to bring in something they've made we look at it see you know where there's room for improvement maybe they can take some constructive criticism and go home and see if they can improve it and and come back um, but for the people with less experience like that the the hardest part for us is knowing if um, if they if what they really love is just shoes or making shoes because there's a big difference be those, between those two I, I meet a lot of people that love shoes which is great you know this, our, our business is, our industry is based on people loving shoes but I think a lot of people kind of want to be shoemakers because they think oh if I can make my own shoes I can design my own shoes and wear them and that would be really cool um, those people are not usually cut out to spend hours and hours and hours and hours for years making bad shoes <laughs> to eventually get to something that would be acceptable. And even when you reach a really high level, it's not a really well-paying job. So you have to really love the making part. If you only do the making to get to the end, you're not going to have a good time. But if you do enjoy that part, you'll ha you'll have a you'll have a lot of good times, and uh, I um, I love I still love the making part, even if I don't love it all the time when it's three in the morning because something has to be delivered the next day. Um, I do that so that I get the satisfaction of delivering those shoes for somebody that that wants them and and appreciates them. So there's you, you know you gotta give and take a little bit, but. It's definitely the tricky part is knowing if they want to do it enough. Mm. Yeah. 
maybe they like doing it, but maybe just, you know, on their spare time, a couple of hours a day and, you know, you can get to that level, but when you're learning, you got to do at least, you know, I usually tell people you got you need to do at least 25 or 50 pairs before you know if you are any good or if you even like it. Um, and if one pair is maybe for somebody inexperienced can take up to 40, 50 hours doing 50 pairs, it's a lot of hours, especially <laughs> if you have to do it on your spare time. Yeah. So it's, if you can't quit your day job, you know, you might take years before you even know if this is something you really want to do. Because mm. I think now I roughly estimated that I've made over 500 pairs of shoes so far. And I would definitely say that the first hundred are the worst, and then it gets better. It gets easy, more fun. So to read, you know, and that you're looking at maybe three years to to get to that number. So if you work full time, so it's um, it's finding the time to put in the hours, and to do that you have to. I wouldn't call it sacrifice because if you consider it a sacrifice you shouldn't really do it in the first place it's just maybe a compromise that okay there are other things in life that are fun but i'm gonna have to put them aside a little bit in favor of of this thing and in this case shoes and it isn't you know it's with everything if you want to be a great athlete you want to be a great you know student you can't do all the things you want all the time. You're mm. gonna have to put some things aside for later or, or forever. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, it's just saying like, who 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 do you want to be? You know, do you want to be, do you want to be really good at this? Then you have to do it a lot. Mm. So, and uh, you see it here in Japan. You know, there's a lot of great shoemakers here, and everyone I've met put in hours that would I think would make most. Uh, nine to five workers uh, shake in fear. <laughs> <laughs> and what advice would you give someone who is having the dream of becoming a shoemaker and are about to persuade it? Um, I think if you want to get into shoemaking, the way I did it is I try to find a place that does the kind of shoemaking you would like to do maybe in a country which is easy for you to get to, maybe not physically get to, but to stay in, you know, if you need a visa, think then things get kind of complicated. It's good if you can speak the language. It's probably great to go to another country and learn a new skill and a new language, but to do both at the same time can be quite difficult. Mm. And I think, you know, if you're an apprentice, the person teaching you is gonna be annoyed with your lack of skill anyway, so, your the language barrier is not going to help so if you speak good english probably try to stick in with people that speak good english so you can understand each other and communicate um and um, unfortunately i think it could be a little bit of a money thing as well when i started i i basically worked a lot and tried to save up enough money to last me a year as an apprentice without getting paid and that's, I think, is for anyone who doesn't really have any previous experience because I can probably tell most people that want to get into shoes that if you haven't really made shoes before if you t or you took a week course, you know, your value to a bespoke shoemaker is basically zero. Because even if you can help with certain things, 
while they're looking over you, they're not doing their work and making any money. So if anything, you know, I think most places, uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have the apprentice pay to be there in the beginning. And that's not because what they're doing is, is not valuable, but there's a lot of apprentices that come to a place and after six months or a year, then realize, oh, this was not for me. And then that year was kind of wasted for, for both people. If, if, the, if the company knows that like, okay, we're gonna put in some money in this person and, or spend our time with this person, and they know that they're gonna be with them for five years, it wouldn't be so much of an investment. But it's been, been our experience that people come and go at quite a rapid rate whether it's because they don't like uh, living in the UK or they don't love living in Northamptonshire or it doesn't pay as well as they thought or it's harder than they thought it would be, people tend to fall off. And usually they've been there a little bit too long or not long enough. And so it's, um, it's a big frustration, I think, for a lot of firms is that it's so hard to find people that really want to do it. Mm or have a realistic expectations of what the business is. Um, so that would be the, well, so I would say try to get as much information as you can, both about you know, what you want to do, what the company you're interested in working at want you to do, you know, and also like what are your expectations of your career as a shoemaker? Like are you expecting to have a certain income? What's your goal income for your standard of living? Is shoemaking going to provide that for you? Because maybe in the first five years you can live off the passion of shoemaking, but everybody gets older. You might want to have a family, a house, you know, and some of these things are easier uh, funded by other careers. And like I mentioned before, do you love shoes or do you love shoemaking? Mm-hmm. And um, the, one of the things that we look for is people that like doing it and also like just like the everything around it, you know there's there's people that want to make shoes but they don't want to learn how to sharpen a knife you know and you know if you go to a, a chef or you know they would say the same thing they're they're one and the same so you need to love like the tools and you know i never met a sh- good shoemaker that doesn't love tools <laughs> so Get your tools together first, you know. I tell a lot of people that come and they show they want to be shoemakers, but they don't own any tools. I tell them, mm. get all the tools and then you come back and mm. we look at it again before. Because if you're not interested in the tools, you're not going to be interested in doing the job. Mm. So whether you work here or somebody else, you're still going to need the tools. So go and spend money on those first, because before you have that, you can't do anything. Mm. Um, so just and also I think one thing that helps us to see is do we keep coming bumping into this person if we go to an event is this person there are they go to everything in the shoe community whether it's just like uh, you know shoemakers pub night that we arrange in London or at your event at the super trunk shows you know, if a guy or a girl would just bump into them once or to send an email like, hey, I want to be a shoemaker, teach me, and we say no, and we never hear from them again, never see them again, you know, they weren't probably that, that passionate about it. But if they keep popping up and being involved year after year, 
you know, you start realizing, you know, maybe this person is is really into this mm. for for the long run, and you might want to give them an opportunity because there's an opportunity for us to get get some help mm. from a person that gives the right type of help. Uh, so that's what we kind of look for. Yeah. If you knew how much hard work you've been through um, to become the successful bespoke shoemaker you are today, <laughs> uh, would you have done it again? Um, you know, it's probably maybe being a bit naive if somebody would have kind of given me a clearer view of what shoemaking life would look like, I would still say like, yeah, I'll do it. But I think if some if I got knocked over the head today and like all the things I learned kind of magically disappeared and somebody told me like, oh, you're going to have to start practicing from scratch then I'll be like, you know, really? Like, I really want to do this over again. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Daniel no, Wigan, thank you. for being part of the Shoegazing Podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Anytime. Cheers. That's it. Thank you for listening in on this episode. For much more on classic shoes, visit shoegazing.com. And to those of you who want to support shoegazing and the continued production of high-level content, I have now launched a Patreon page where you can contribute with anything from $3 a month. Any help is much appreciated. See shoegazing.com for more info on this. In the next episode, I will talk about setting up a new shoe brand with Tom Brown of Sons of Henry. So, hear you again soon.